Hello and welcome back to In My Non-Expert Opinion. I'm Chelsea Reif, your host, here to chat through beauty, wellness, business, relationships, travel, and so much more. Now, the title of my podcast is about being a non-expert, so today I brought on an actual expert in the financial space, Sheer Caden. She's a financial advisor, and we're here to open up the floor with more money conversations to break the weird taboo around it. Outside of just breaking that taboo, I think it's really important to personally step up your financial literacy game. For example, I'm 28 and I still have to make sure I don't overdraft at times, no joke. I do contribute to a savings account. I have a 401k. I don't excessively shop, but that doesn't mean I don't impulsively book trips or know how to invest. That's why I wanted Sheer to come on. She posts awesome videos on social, breaking things down in layman terms, so it's really relatable. We can understand what the hell all this means when she posts about it. So with her expert opinion on, to balance my non-expert opinion, you're in for a great episode on finances. If you like the new name, the look, the content, I'd love if you could show that by sharing on Instagram stories, reading, reviewing, and subscribing. You can consider it payment, again, we're breaking the taboo around money, uh, for providing free value. So with that, let's get into today's episode with Sheer. You guys know how much I struggle with finances. I get a low balance alert pretty much every other week. I have no idea the difference between a Roth IRA or a 401k or any of it means. So I figured we need to have an expert on. So today that expert is Sheer Caden. Thank you so much for coming on Sheer and welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. And now you work at a firm called Felt. Am I saying that right? Felt Basic and Star. Thank you. So you work there. <laughs> That's why you work there. I can't even pronounce it. Tell us about what you do and actually how you got into finance. So I actually had no idea that this is what I wanted to do. Um, They recruited me when I was still in school, when I was at college at FSU. And um, it is a very entrepreneurial career. And I was studying entrepreneurship at the time. So they kind of just pitched the, you know, beautiful picture to me. And, you know, you... You get to have your own financial planning practice, but you have all the experts to help you along the way. So it seemed appealing. I said, I'll try it. If I hate it, I can always, you know, quit and do something else. And six years later, I'm still here and I love it. So it's it's one of those careers where you really get to work with people and help people and get to hear everyone's story, which is really cool. Yeah, and you do a great job of explaining things really simply on your social media, which I think is really interesting because... A, no one really talks about finance, and B, they definitely don't on social media. Where did that idea come from of, like, I want to share these tips on social? Well, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of young people especially, and this actually honestly trickles down to the older generations, but the older you get, it gets harder to actually admit that you might not know certain things. I've just noticed with working with people that education is so important. That's so important part of my process is educating on how things work and what makes sense for you or someone else. And I've just noticed there's just like that disconnect where people really don't understand a lot of these different areas, you know, in finance where if they just had more information, they'd feel a lot more comfortable, you know, creating a financial plan and being on track to do the things they want to do. Yeah, it definitely comes from a lack of education and like you said, kind of a insecurity issue where no one really wants to admit what's going on. So 
I think it's also overwhelming. So how can you start with financial planning if you're just way in over your head? So I think really the first step is to figure out what your expenses are. And I know it's really hard because your expenses can change and vary so much, but really taking the time to list out your fixed expenses, creating a budget and kind of sticking to a plan saying, okay, these are the things I want to accomplish. Let's start small and just figure out what I can do. And the biggest thing there's always the biggest thing to remember is there's always a difference which you can do, should do, and are comfortable with. And you can work your way towards that. But I mean, step one is just identifying what your goals are and what you're able to accomplish based on your your income. And what's a way to create a budget? Like let's say you just tell me to do that. Is there something online I should be looking at? Like, is there a resource, a website? Like what's that first step? Um, I mean, like for me, I have a, you know, Excel fillable, uh, budget worksheet that we send to our clients, but I'm sure if you Googled a budget worksheet or, you know, something like that on online, you could definitely find something like that. That'll kind of list out all the different possibilities and that'll help you think, oh yeah, I spent this much on that or this much on this. So once I do that, let's say I do my budget worksheet and I figure out I spend like way too much on getting my nails done, for example. Like that's something I could do at home, but I I really don't like to. Mm -hmm. That's something I feel like I could figure out myself. What's something that I could come to you for where you could really sit down with me and say, here's what we're doing. Like, would you rather have clients come to you with that or come with nothing and you say, okay, we need to start from scratch? I mean, realistically, if you're going to work with an advisor, which I always recommend because it's going to be a lot more beneficial uh, to be able to work with someone who can educate you um, and also keep you on track. I think working with an advisor more than anything else, it's the accountability. So when someone shares with me the things that they want to accomplish and we write them down and we talk about them and then we meet periodically, it's that extra person that's kind of helping you reach your goals and coming up with a strategy and a plan with you. So even if you think it's simple, if you can work with that advisor and they can help you kind of plan it out, you can put yourself in a much better position and you know someone else is kind of helping look at what you're doing. So it kind of adds that extra layer of, okay, well, I told somebody else, so it makes you a lot more motivated to want to do those things. Yeah, they, I, it's funny because people do that with everything else in their life. People share that they're on a diet or they're they're on an app so they can follow each other and share that too so you can keep each other accountable. So it is a little taboo and weird that no one thinks about a financial advisor, like you said, to add that extra layer of, okay, well, now I'm working with a professional. I do need to keep myself in check. Um, that's really interesting like way to think about it, like it's an accountability person almost. Mm-hmm. What about student loans, though? Because those make no sense to a lot of people. And I'll give you an example. I'm in a ton of student loan debt because I went to grad school, but I pay the minimum every month. I pay off my credit cards every month and I have a really good credit score. My sister has probably one fifth of my student debt and she is freaking out and is trying to pay it off as fast as she possibly can. And she says it's like giving her anxiety. And like I said, it's like 25 percent of what mine are. How do you suggest handling student loans? So it's very common, I think, to get overwhelmed by debt, any sort of debt. Uh, Most people just don't feel comfortable with it. But there's good debt and there's bad debt. You know, you're in a position where they're charging you such a high interest rate where you're kind of like in a rat race. doesn't matter what you pay off. You're always going to end up having 
you know, a higher balance the next month. But with student loans, with a mortgage, stuff like that, that's not to say any debt is good, but that's debt that's okay. Um, and a lot of people feel the need to rush to pay off that debt. But our recommendation is to have that balance between saving and paying off debt. Because if you're overpaying your debt and you're taking all of your extra dollars that you could be putting away to to saving or investing to your debt, you're going to wake up one day and have no debt, but you're also not going to have anything saved. And if your interest rates are low and you're in a reasonable situation, it does make more sense to balance those things out and put the other dollars towards something else that you can earn a rate of return on. And then you can slowly pay off the debt. And, you know, at one point, if you're like, you know what, I really want to pay it off. Well, here you've accumulated some dollars on the side. You could essentially pay it off, but now the money's on your side and not sitting with the student loan, uh, whoever you owe, you owe your loan to. What if I have, so to make it simple, if I have like $10,000 in credit card debt and $7,000 in student loan debt, you're saying go after the credit card first? Definitely tackle credit card debt. And when it comes to credit card debt, you want to try to reduce the interest rate that you're paying. They all have high interest rates unless you have a zero interest credit card. And if you don't and you have good enough credit, I would recommend trying to get a zero interest credit card and transferring the balance over and allow yourself to have that 18 months to pay off the debt knowing that you can create a plan for that saying, okay, I have to pay off $10,000 of credit card debt. How much do I have to pay on a monthly basis to get rid of it without all of a sudden, you know, after that time comes up, start getting that interest accruing again. So something like that, just so that you can get yourself out of it, that would be my recommendation or even doing a personal loan. They offer really great personal loans for low fixed rates that will really help you get out of that, you know, situation and being in, you know, some credit card debt, because now you can be in a fixed monthly payment. Personal loan is actually much better for your credit as well. Um, so if you're keeping track of your credit score and you want to make sure that you have a good score, personal loans are not as frowned upon as having credit card debt. Credit card debt's actually the number one thing that they really don't like with the credit bureaus. Oh, that is a good tip. I feel like I did not know that at all. And I feel like I really tried to make an effort to understand finances better. And I had no idea. That's, that's a good tip. What about if you have credit card debt, but then you're also a millennial, you know, we have friends that are getting married and having babies and trying to buy a house and getting a car. Like, how do you start prioritizing? Because let's say I'm getting married. Well, then the next thing that I would want to buy is a house together and a car and a baby. And that seems like a lot. So how do you balance that all? So I think it's very important to not overwhelm yourself and not move too quickly. So if you're in a position where you're try really trying to get out of debt and you have a lot of debt, it definitely doesn't make sense to jump the gun and try to buy a house right away. That's also You're also going to have an issue credit-wise being able to buy a house if you have you know, a significant amount of credit card debt. I think tackling things one at a time, but slowly building towards those other goals. It's important not to say, okay, well, I want to rush my life because then you're going to end up being in a situation where you're never going to get out of any of the debt and you're just accruing more and more, but you're not really putting yourself in a better position. So, you know, that, that would be my big, you know, my big thing is, you know, people get excited and I think, 
you know, as we're getting older, people feel that they have these obligations to do one thing or another. But, you know, if you want to marry someone and you you're you're feeling like it's going to be financially restrictive, maybe wait a little bit. You guys can stay, you know, together, engage, whatever it might be. But wait until you guys are financially settled, because I'll tell you the biggest problem that people really have in relationships and, you know, when they're married is they fight a lot about money and the stress that comes with, you know, money creates stress for us, whether we have it or we don't, or we're worried about paying for something. So, you know, if you don't feel financially confident before you're getting married, it would make sense to get yourself kind of comfortable on your feet before you take that next step and commit to another person, not really feeling that you're stable. Yeah. I mean, that's something that I'm even noticing now my friends are getting in arguments over and I'm like, wait, did you not have a conversation? But I'm like, it is a really awkward conversation. So is that what you're, what you see couples argue most on? Like what is the biggest issue when couples come to see you? So, I mean, everyone has their own viewpoints on money and how to spend it. It doesn't matter how much you make. Everyone just has a different way of how they perceive money and whether they're very conservative with their spending or they are big spenders or they have lofty goals or small goals. And I think that it's so important because I've noticed that my clients that are on the same page are not even on the same page, but my clients that understand each other's viewpoints and have come to an agreement on things are so much happier because they're not wondering, well, what is going to happen because I want to do this and my spouse might not be on the same page as me. So it's, I think it's very important before you get married to continue having those conversations. And it's most important to have that conversation when it's not stressed and you don't have to make a decision to sit down and say, okay, how do we feel about money? What is it that we're earning? Who's responsible for what? You know, how do we feel about spending on the kids? Some parents love to spend on their kids. Some parents feel that their kids should get a job and that they should pay for things. So that's a conversation that's really important to have. A lot of parents do fight on how to spend on their children, whether they're paying for college or they're not. Are they supporting them? Are they buying them a car? Are they not? So there's a lot of different variables, not just when it comes to the two of you, but also once you start creating that family and you don't want to end up being in a situation where you don't understand each other and there's tension. So definitely just, it's an awkward conversation, um, but it's so important to keep the relationship healthy. It's a really awkward conversation. You have to have it. But what about combining finances when getting married? Is there a rule of thumb there? You know, everyone has their own beliefs. And you you can't tell some, you know, I would never want to put my beliefs on somebody of how I think things should go. Um, but I think that it's important whether you combine them or you have them separate is that you talk about the roles. And, you know, like I kind of said before, who's responsible for what? Are we sharing all the expenses evenly or are these bills yours or are these bills mine? How much are we spending on this? When we make a financial decision or if you want to make a purchase, do you have to consult me first? Or, you know, if you want to buy something, just go ahead and buy it. I think that those kind of conversations, regardless of if you're combining them or if you have a joint account and then you have, you know, your two separate accounts, however, which way you guys feel comfortable doing it, um, but talking about it and, you know, I've seen that it's not always the healthiest if one person in a relationship makes a big purchase and doesn't really discuss or consult the other uh, person that they are married to. Right. Because it's like, whoa, where did that come from? But like you said, it it is really situational. I think 
for me and everyone, this is my personal opinion, but it's my podcast. That's why I'm going to say it is I want to, (laughs) I read in Steve Harvey's book, he has four accounts. He has a personal one for him, a personal one for his wife. They have a shared one where all their like bills go, like everything that they have to pay. And then an emergency one. And I was like, okay, it sounds like a lot, but I was like, I think that would work for me because I get so many beauty appointments booked and I like to travel and I don't want my husband being like, what the hell are these, like all these appointments from this spa? And I don't want that argument. But to your point, there's other people like, I don't give a shit. Like what's mine is yours. What's yours is mine. Like as long as we're on the same page, like it's fine. Mm -hmm. So it's not conversation being on that same page because it is a partnership you know and any dollar that you do spend does affect your spouse whether it's in your account or in the joint account it does affect your spouse right well a lot of people that listen to this podcast are in their 20s or early 30s and they're trying to get their finances on track and i feel like the first thing people do when they when they think about that is cutting things out like can i Mm -hmm. do i need to go to dry bar do i can i stop going to starbucks should i cancel my membership to orange theory do you have any rule of thumb on like cutting things out or like, let's say I have a goal right now and I want to save like $10,000. How do you suggest starting? It doesn't have to be a specific plan, but just like a stepping stone. So again, I think it all comes back to the budget and really figuring out what are your expenses? What are the discretionary expenses that you have? And then how much do you have left over, if any? And then figuring out what your goals are and how important they are to you. Some people don't need to cut things out. Some people are in a financial position where they can still reach their goals and not cut out the things that they enjoy doing, like going to dry bar or getting, you know, going to Starbucks every morning or three times a day for some people. There's people who don't need to cut things out and you shouldn't feel guilty for spending on yourself if you can afford it. Right. Now, if you go ahead and you list down what your goals are and you really work in run projections and say, okay, these are my goals. This is how much I have to put away. Am I going to be able to reach my goals based on what I have to put away already? Okay. Well, if I'm not going to reach my goals, how important are my goals to me and which things am I currently spending on that I can cut out so that I can reach my goal? So it's all about what you're willing to compromise for yourself. Now I'll never sit with a client and tell them you need to cut out this, this, and that. But I'll tell them, if you want to reach this goal by this time, we recommend cutting out X amount of dollars from your expenses. Now, which is that important enough to you and which things do you think are least important to you out of the expenses that you're currently in your discretionary spending? So before we move on to the next question, we need to take a step back because half the words you've said, I'm not even sure what they mean. So what is (laughs) it? No, it's fine. This is why we have experts on. What is a discretionary expense? discretionary meaning it's not necessary it's not necessary for you to survive that's dining out getting your nails done getting your starbucks instead of making coffee yourself going to the blow dry bar instead of doing your own hair stuff like that stuff that's not necessary for living but it's stuff that you do because you're earning a living and you want to spend it on yourself got it okay and then what is fixed rate i think you said that earlier about personal loans like What's the difference Mm -hmm. between fixed rate and what would be the opposite of that or something different? So with your credit cards, what they do is they're charging you a variable rate. Basically, they're charging you a high interest rate for whatever balance it is that you have. And that rate will change constantly at their discretion. When you go ahead and you go into a fixed rate personal loan, they're going to charge you a very low interest in comparison to what you're paying in your credit cards. And it's fixed. So they'll say... 
you want to take out this loan for this uh, dollar amount over the next 48 months, this is your fixed payment and you're guaranteed to be done paying this dollar amount in 48 months from now. So you know you're guaranteed to be done with that debt. It's like a fixed payment plan and you know your interest rate's never changing. So there's no surprises. Whereas with the credit cards, the rates are a lot higher and they're always changing them at at the discretion of the credit card uh, company. Got it. Okay. Wow. That makes a lot of sense. And that's something that I need to do more research on because I feel like I just open credit cards based on like travel points. So I need to be checking the, the rates and the, mm-hmm. what was the other thing? The rates, the hot, I don't know. Is that it? Like, what should you be looking for in a credit card? Well, I mean, credit cards realistically keep you safe. For me, that would be the number one reason besides the points, which, you know, is the reason why you're attracted to a credit card because they'll give you a bunch of miles for signing up or every dollar you spend, you'll get points for cash back or for different, you know, different various uh, purchases that you can make now with points. Um, But the big thing is the safety. I think in today's world, more than ever, uh, people are always hacking and, you know, stealing people's credit card information. So if you're going and you're using your debit card, your bank card, you know, your Bank of America card or your SunTrust card, and someone hacks onto that, let's say someone takes $5,000 out of your account. Now you have to, you know, create a dispute with SunTrust or whatever bank you have. They're going to do their research. And, you know, months later, you may or may not ever get your money back. And it's a really scary thing where if you're using a credit card and someone hacks onto your American Express and they you know, make charges of $5,000, American Express will cover it. They'll deal with it. You're not liable. So you have that layer of protection, which I think is so important. So for me, using the credit card more than anything is just to protect the money that you do have in the bank. But what's so important is not to use those credit cards and then get carried away because when you swipe it, you don't see your account balance go down in the bank. So it's a really hard thing for a lot of people. And that's why a lot of Americans end up in credit card debt because they're used to swiping their credit card, but they're not thinking of the account value going down in their bank. So they, they have that feeling that they have more money than they really do. And if you're not paying that card down by the end of the month, you're creating debt for yourself. So if you're going to use a credit card, it's very important to use it because you're protecting yourself, but just plan to know that at the end of the month, you want to pay off that entire balance. Yeah. And I think everyone that's had a credit card has probably learned that the hard way. And even recently myself, like I've been in that situation where I've been swiping and swiping and all of a sudden I'm like, how on God's earth did I amount to thousands of dollars in debt? Luckily I paid it off. But recently I made the mistake of thinking I was getting my bonus check before I was it actually comes next month and I was swiping away thinking I would use my bonus check to pay it off and I think that's a lesson you would probably tell everyone is don't spend money that you don't have yet because Mm -hmm. now I'm waiting and I'm probably going to miss my credit card payment well I think yeah I think it's one of those and it's hard you know I don't think anyone should ever feel guilty or bad for making any sort of decision that they feel that wasn't the best decision because you have to live and learn. It doesn't matter how many, uh, you know, wise people give you advice, tell you how to do things. Sometimes you're going to end up doing something that feels right at the moment and that's okay. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to really focus on just spending what you have at that moment um, and to not get into the trend that majority of Americans get into, which is spending before they earn it and then creating an issue for them down the line. Because you really just never know what's going to happen. Yeah, you you sure don't. What about how, this is to me like the biggest question that no one understands and no one knows what any of these words mean. Is a 401k, a Roth IRA, like what does Roth even mean? Can you walk us through those different terms? Yes. Okay. So a 401k is actually only offered through your employer. So the only difference really besides contribution limits and stuff like that between a 401k and an IRA is a 401k is an employer sponsored retirement account and an IRA stands for an individual retirement account. There we go. So that's basically the big difference. There are tax advantages to having a retirement account but there are also a lot of rules with any benefit that you're going to get, especially from the government, they're going to have rules. And that's where a lot of people save. A uh, majority of people's savings are actually in specifically a 401k because it's almost like a forced savings. If it's coming out of your paycheck before it hits your bank account, you don't feel it. You forget you've, you forget that you've even put it away. So it's a really easy way for Americans to be able to save. But a lot of people look at that account as like their emergency account, which it really shouldn't be. It's very separate because it's a retirement account. Mm-hmm. All of these retirement accounts are not really truly accessible until you reach that magic age of 59 and a half. Um, and before that, there's a lot either penalties or if you're in a 401k, some of them have loan provisions. But realistically, those accounts are not meant to be used for other purposes other than your retirement. Um, but there's tax advantages. You ask, what's a Roth? What's the difference between that and a traditional? So a traditional 401k, a traditional IRA, both work in the same way where the dollars that you put in are deducted from your income today. So a lot of people love that. We're in, you know, I think our time right now is everyone's in the, okay, what can make me happy right now? And that's immediate satisfaction of, okay, so if I put $10,000 into my 401k, I can deduct $10,000 of my income to not have to pay taxes on those dollars. And the dollars that grow in that 401k account are deferred until you, the taxes on those dollars are deferred until you decide to pull the money out in retirement. So you're not paying taxes on the growth along the way. Okay. When you pull the money out, when you reach retirement, every single dollar that comes out to you is fully taxable as income. Okay. And you're pull it out as pieces, but every dollar you pull out is is considered income. Okay. In a Roth 401k or IRA, it's the complete opposite. The dollars you put in are not a deduction, so you're not getting any tax benefit today. But as the dollars grow, every single dollar can grow and come out tax-free to you as long as you're pulling the dollars out after your your retirement age of 59 and a half. Okay, I have heard, am I crazy that I keep hearing it's 65? I didn't know it was 59 and a half. Did that change or am I thinking of like Medicare or something or Medicaid? Because Yeah, you're thinking thinking of Medicare and realistically (laughs) 65 is the typical retirement age per se um, that people talk about. Um, That's just kind of the target age that a lot of people have for accessing your accounts early. It's 59 and a half. Okay, so 59 and a half, 
you retire and you were saying the Roth is something that they the dollars grow tax free. Is that what you were saying? Correct. So then I feel like just hearing this from like a high level, the first one to me sounds better because I'm in a lower income bracket. But is that true? Like, I don't want to say one is better or not because I know it's situational. I guess I'm trying to understand, like, how do people decide which one is better for them? So it depends on your income. It does. Um, Not one is better than the other. And sometimes you can just do a combination of both. Um, Being able to reduce your taxable income today, like in the traditional, is nice. But all you're doing is creating a tax burden down the line. Um, so it is important to have tax diversification in retirement because if every single dollar you've accumulated is in that taxable account, let's say you're in a situation where you've accumulated a few million dollars in your retirement account and the only dollars you have are in that 401k, which is not recommended in the first place, but let's just run through that scenario. And you decide you want to invest in a business or buy a property and you need a few hundred thousand dollars out of that account. Let's say you pull out a few hundred thousand dollars. It's as if, let's say you needed $400,000. The $400,000 that you pull out is $400,000 of income to you. It's as if you earned $400,000 that year. Now you're paying taxes at the highest tax bracket just to be able to invest in this opportunity. Okay. Which sometimes may discourage you from even wanting to do it. So having tax diversification gives you more control over your dollars. It's nice to get the tax break today, but if you have no tax-free money in retirement, you're kind of at the mercy of the IRS. Mm. So it really is like you have to figure out how you want it to be laid out for yourself. But then what is it called when you combine it? Is that when it's like Roth IRA 401k? Like what is the name of that? It's just having two different accounts. It's very important in general to have different buckets of money, uh, different dollars that are for different purposes, that work in different ways. You want money that's going to be tax-free at retirement. You want money that is, you know, you're getting the deduction on today's, but you'll have taxable dollars. You want to put money into regular investment accounts that are just going to, you're going to be taxed on like capital gains. Uh, you can invest in real estate, you know, you can have your business interests, you want to have your emergency account, you should invest in fixed accounts. If you have different buckets of money that are all meant for different purposes and different points in your life, you're going to be in a position where you have most control over your financial life. If you're in a situation where you're saving a lot of money, but it's only going to retirement and you're, you know, 25, 30 years old, you're going to restrict on your access to the dollars that you have. You can have a lot of money accumulated in, you know, your 401k account, but now you might have to pull it out as a loan if your employer has a loan provision in the 401k. So it's just making sure that you're educated and putting yourself in a position where you have the control. And that's what's so important. And just educating on how these things work as well. I think a lot of people um, don't understand what the 401k even is. I've seen that a lot of people don't contribute to it because they don't understand what it means. Even if they're getting a match from their employer, which is free money, they're like, I don't understand it. I don't know how it works. So I'd rather just not do it at all. Um, So to me, it's just understanding what it is that you're putting your dollars into and making sure that you're comfortable with it, but then having that control. 
Right. And I see that a lot too. My dad actually was the one that was, when I first got my job, he was like, you need to immediately start contributing because I am a really impulsive spender and buyer. And he was like, you, if you see that money, you're going to spend it and then you're going to want to use it. You need to just not even see it kind of like what you were saying before, but it's Mm -hmm. because of him, I had to learn that way. But if he would have never told me anything, I don't even think to this day, I probably would have like now just started looking into it. But mm-hmm. when should we start saving for retirement? So it's, a, it's, a, it's one of those things where really what your dad told you is really, really amazing advice because you want to create that good habit from day one. You know, you want to, even if it's a small dollar amount and you're like, you know what, $25 a paycheck, I'm putting to my 401k. You're creating the habit of doing it and not just creating the habit, but the earlier you start saving for retirement, the less you have to do later on because the time that you have is really, really, really your best friend. Um, Having more time allows you to put away less and get to the same end result. So just by any small dollar that you can put away. And like I said, it's creating that budget and seeing if you can put away dollars towards your retirement. If there's a match and you know, you want to take advantage of it, but you can't afford to do it because your fixed expenses are too high, then you might not be ready to save for retirement. The number one thing that you should have before anything else is an emergency savings account. You should always have three to six months of your expenses sitting in cash. God forbid something happens. You don't want to go to the credit card company. You want to be able to go to yourself and be in a position where you can, you know, afford to pay for whatever surprises come your way. You lose your job. You have a few months to get back on your feet. There's a lot of different things that can happen in life. So having that emergency savings is so, so important. Um, But it is also important to create that good habit. So it's really based on your budget and what you're able to do. Like you said, you're like, okay, if I had the money, I'd probably just find a way to spend it. So if you don't see it out of sight, out of mind, you didn't even know you had the opportunity to spend it. So there's a difference between, like I said, the discretionary expenses that we just end up finding ways to spend money when we see it sitting in the account. We're all guilty of it as opposed to, hey, you know what? I just started working and I'm still trying to balance out all of these new bills I have. What about someone that is like me, that is an impulsive spender that especially millennials now that are like, I just want to live my life. I want to travel. I want to go all over the world. Like down the line, money doesn't matter to me. I want to like live in the now. What advice would you give to someone that has that mindset? And, and you know, I, I get that. And that's the thing. There's always a balance between today and the future. I'm not one of those people that believes, okay, you know what? All you have to do is save. You can't enjoy life. Cause why are we all working? You know, we're working so that we can enjoy life and we can do these things that we, you know, that we love, that we can travel, that we can, you know, go out to dinners with our friends. Those are things that make us happy. Um, but it's paying your future self first. And this all comes back and I'm always going to revert back to the budget and your expenses and what you can put away and saying, you know what, if I know that I'm paying my future self first, I have my emergency savings and I'm paying my future self first. I'm putting dollars towards my retirement. I'm putting enough away that it's meaningful. And I've committed to doing that. Now you've said, okay, well, I've earmarked the other dollars, whatever I have, I can play with whatever I've you know left in my budget. I can go on a trip with, I can go ahead and, you know, do whatever I would like on the weekends with my friends. I can go to that concert because you've already established it. You've already created your savings. You know, it's kind of now you've already done that. You can, go and do the fun things that you enjoy. 
Now, let's say that someone's listening to this and they're like, you know what? She's right. I really need to start looking into retirement. Do you have an idea of how much we should be saving for retirement or how do you even figure that out? So this is this is a hard one, too, and it is very situational. You know, the rule of thumb is you really should be saving 15 to 20 percent of your gross income. Um, And the big thing is just running projections and running projections along the way, Um, because today, you know, you could ask I could ask someone right now, a 30 year old, how much money do you think you're going to need at retirement? Their answer that they're going to give me today is going to be wildly different than if we were to fast forward to 65 and they're about to retire. And it's going to be very different from when they're 35 and when they're 40. So it's not an exact science, but it's really, you know, you have to work with someone and constantly be looking to see if you're on track to the goals that you think that you have today. And as your plan evolves and as your income increases, that's going to change. So it's definitely you have to be saving a certain percentage, but also running projections and seeing if I save this dollar amount, how much will I have in retirement and how much can that create in an income stream for me? Does it sound like enough based on how much I'm spending today or do I think I need to kick it up a notch? I feel like something I keep hearing about myself that I have never honestly thought of is real estate. Can you walk us through how you guys work with real estate and do you recommend looking into investing in it? Like it just seems so overwhelming to me. So I want your opinion on, on real estate and retirement. Yeah. So, I mean, real estate, you know, saving in, you know, investment accounts for your retirement are two different things. But if you're going to be investing in real estate, ultimately that is going to affect your retirement. If you have assets that you're earning rental income off of, or you end up selling the properties and now you have, you know, assets to work with when you're in retirement, those, so it's not one or the other. Um, You can do both. And like I said, just creating different buckets of money, having different assets. Um, But it is, you know, I think a lot of people in everything, not just real estate, you know, think that they're going to kind of be able to buy a property and consistently have, you know, someone paying them rent or, you know, earning, you know, a great return on it. And, you know, the value of the house growing significantly over time. And sometimes that happens. Um, and sometimes things don't work out so well. So I think it's just setting that expectation and being prepared that if you are going to invest in real estate to educate yourself and work with a real estate professional that can really walk you through it. Um, but being prepared for what if you don't have someone living in, you know, let's say you you own a condo and you want to rent it out and you're, you're assuming you're going to have a consistent, you know, uh, income from that. Let's say you don't have someone who wants to rent out your condo and you go five months and no one's living in it. Well, you have to account for that. And you have to have a different bank account and a different savings account just to make sure you can cover the costs of having that condo if you don't have someone living in it, if you don't have someone paying you rent. Um, and also all the surprise costs that come with owning property. Uh, something breaks, you gotta fix it, you know? So it's just preparing yourself and being more realistic. And you know, people buy properties all the time and the properties don't always go up, things go down. So it's being prepared to know that, you know, every financial decision you make sometimes, you know, can go very wonderful, you know, wonderfully well. And sometimes you can put yourself in a position where things go south, but just being prepared for those so that you don't have a bad situation. If you're counting on having the income from a rental property on a monthly basis and not preparing for any of these surprises, you're going to put yourself in a bad situation. Investing 
is a whole new world to me. Like even talking about this is so fascinating and I've only started paying attention recently because I am thinking about other income streams and how I can really maximize my financial future. But again, it's all overwhelming. So how can you start to learn about investing? I feel like there's apps out there and websites and, you know, I could like Google it, but like, what's your take on that? Um, I mean, yeah, I think it's definitely good. There's a lot of really great books, a lot of really great, you know, websites that you can articles, stuff like that. But I think realistically, if you're working with someone, if you're aligning yourself, whether you're investing in real estate or investing in the stock market, if you're aligning yourself with a professional that specializes in that field, that's where you're going to get the best education. Um, you know, that to me is, you know, or, or even a mentor, let's say you do, for example, want to invest in real estate work with a mentor, talk to somebody who's done it and is doing a really great job at it. I think that's where you're going to learn the most because there's so much information out there and there's so much bad information out there that it's so accessible that sometimes you might be reading something and you're learning something that might not really be as helpful to you, could be harmful as well. Right. So working with people that you trust and that you know understand what they're doing and and can give you the right guidance that would be my my big suggestion yeah i recently downloaded an app and i'm not even sure what i'm doing with it and i might have to delete it because i'm like i'm not sure if this is helping me or hurting me i don't think it's hurting but i'm not sure what i'm even doing with it so that's something that i'm curious about is is there like a tool or or something similar that you would recommend people to start if they're nervous to go to a human or they don't even they're just embarrassed to go to a financial advisor because they don't even know what to what to do or ask Uh, i mean there's a lot of apps and websites like if you want to get organized i don't want to endorse anyone i have to be careful but there's a lot of apps and websites you can link your bank accounts to create a budget on keep track of your spending uh definitely i'd recommend using one of those credit check websites to keep track of your credit um but you know when it comes to let me go back to kind of what you said which really resonates with me because a lot of people feel this way is people are scared to work with an advisor um for a few reasons they're embarrassed that they don't understand they're embarrassed that they haven't done enough they don't want to share how much they're earning whether it's good or bad you know and i think that that's a big thing that if you're going to work with someone work with someone that you're comfortable with that you trust and realistically most advisors that you know do good work which most really do um it's this, it's a kind of a safe place. You know, it's crazy to me how much people really share with me. I mean, sharing your finances um, is more intimate than, you know, talking about your sex life. It really, really is. So you have to feel comfortable to open up and you have to put yourself in a vulnerable position, uh, you know, to share your life with somebody else or to share your life with a, with a team of people that can help you. Um, but that really puts you in the best position to align yourself. And I mean, you have to think about the fact that we've heard it all. If I'm working with hundreds of people, I've heard every story. I've heard, you know, every situation. We've seen it all. Um, so no one's really alone, you know. And I think that's the the biggest fear a lot of people have is that they're scared to share or they're not comfortable sharing Um, but most people have a lot of the same experiences. They're just not talking to each other, but they're all talking to us. So we've seen it all and we've been able to handle situations and help people, you know, get themselves in the right position so that, you know, I do recommend working with someone and putting yourself in a place where it's safe, but you know, you can get the guidance that you need so that you do feel confident. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the other big thing is I think people don't understand the cost structure or any or anything about working with a financial advisor. I, I actually met with two in Chicago and I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to pay like a thousand dollars up front to meet with them because I think going back to like your career and how you got started, people tend to say you're going to make more money in finance or medical fields or being an entrepreneur. So I think people automatically think, oh, these people are going to cost a lot if I have to sit down with them and meet them. And I'm not, I am already bad with finances. I don't want to pay a million dollars up front to sit down and meet with them. But then what I found out was that wasn't even the case. We actually went through a budget sheet together. We met several times and the payment that it, it was actually like if you open an account with them, then they got paid. So I don't know if you can speak to that, but can you maybe break the barrier of like, it's not going to cost you $2,000 to sit down with someone and have like a consultation? Yeah. So most advisors will, will do like an initial consultation, just like a complimentary. Um, realistically, I could never charge somebody at all without knowing their situation. So a first meeting is really a lot of questions. Um, understanding someone's situation, what's important to them, what they're currently doing, you know, talking to them about us, our firm, what it is that we can offer them, and then figuring out if we can work together, if it makes sense to work together. So that first meeting is nothing but just sharing information about one another and seeing if there's the synergy and, and the ability to help, you know, the other person. So uh, I'll say that um, when it comes to, you know, my field and how we get paid, uh, our, you know, our firm works in one of two ways, you know, so we do have comprehensive fee-based financial planning. Um, and then we also have, you know, our investment and in insurance where we get compensated based on, you know, someone actually investing or putting their money with us. Um, so we do have two routes, you know, we do charge a fee for sitting down with somebody if they're going through the comprehensive financial planning route, which is a much deeper dive into somebody's financial life. Uh, usually a younger person who's really starting out doesn't have as much complexities. They're not really going to go through that comprehensive financial plan that we do. Um, but it really is so situational when we sit with someone, we figure out which way makes, you know, which route in our, in our process makes sense for them. And a lot of times someone evolves to being a different type of client, you know, as, as they grow. Absolutely. I think it's really funny too, how much our parents influence our financial decisions because you grow up around hearing what, how they talk about money. It kind of goes back to what you were saying about how people perceive money. It tends to have this like dirty connotation that it's guilty and greedy and negative and I think that's why people honestly don't talk about it. You sound arrogant if you bring it up or why are we even talking about it? It's on the same wavelength as talking about like religion or politics at dinner, but it, it's something that we use literally every single day as an exchange of energy. So what is like your viewpoint on money? Like I would love to hear just like how you think about it. Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, that's how the world goes around, right? So you know, we all are working to earn a living and, you know, that is all what we, what, what we're all working towards is to be successful and to continue earning, you know, a certain dollar amount to fulfill the, the different things that we want in our lives. But, you know, it isn't something that I think should be spoken about with, you know, your friends at the dinner table. It isn't something that you should be talking about with other people realistically, because, 
it might, like you said, sound, it might come off arrogant or it might be, make people feel uncomfortable. So it's not something where really it's like a topic that, you know, is, is comfortable. Some, same with, like you said, religion or politics, but it is something that you need to talk about with your family members, like I said, your spouse and with an advisor, your CPA, your attorney, you know, you need to be the, your, your team of advisors all need to be on the same page with you and with each other realistically about your money, because then you'll be successful with the things that you want to accomplish with it. For sure. I think that's also something really important to note is that if you have a CPA and you have a financial advisor and your CPA and your financial advisor aren't communicating, that's not going to be successful for you. Everyone needs to be on the same page so that you can accomplish what you're looking to accomplish. And everyone has to have the same, you know, uh, plan. So, you know, if the CPA is thinking one thing and the advisor is thinking another, it's never going to work out very well. You know, if you're working with an attorney, you also have to have them, you know, depending on, you know, what it is that you're doing. If you have a business and you have your business attorney, then they always should be in the loop. If you're working with an estate planning attorney, that estate planning attorney definitely needs to be talking to the CPA and to, you know, your financial advisor. So all of the people that you work with in regards to your money and your, you know, everything that financially you're dealing with, really need to be you know in communication with each other right i mean it it makes sense in theory you're like oh duh i want to keep everyone in contact but then i'm imagining when you're actually doing it you're like oh well this person does this and the other person does that so they specialize in different things but to your point it all affects each you know each each part of your financial life will affect you know you in a different way and if the financial advisor thinks that you maybe should be doing a Roth over a traditional, you know, 401k contribution, but the CPA thinks just the opposite, you're going to have a conflict. Right. So everyone needs to either get on a call or meet and be on the same page and know that, okay, we've come up with this strategy and this is why. Right. That makes sense. I think it's also funny that our parents or maybe even friends or family tell us all this different advice too. Like, oh, you need to be putting 10% away every paycheck or the the rules of the three E's, like emergencies, essentials, and something else. Like there's all this different information out there. So do you have a rule of thumb when it comes to like saving from each paycheck or a mantra that you live by, like similar to that, like the three E's? Uh, well, I think... You know, and I, I've said this before, and I actually say this phrase a lot, difference what you sh- can do, should do, and what you're comfortable doing. Um, it really depends on your goals. I know we talked about saving for retirement from your paycheck, but now we're just talking about saving. Um, so depends on what your goals are. You know, if you have big goals, then you're going to have to save more towards those goals. If you don't have really anything that you're planning for, then you might not have to save as much, you know, to, to reach those goals. If you're planning on buying a house and you need X amount of dollars within the next 18 months, you're going to have to save a lot more per paycheck. So it really, it all comes down to what goals are we saving towards? Right. It all seems really situational. So I think a way to wrap this up is what are your top three tips for being an excellent control of your own finances to being a master of your finances, if you will, what are your top three tips? Creating a budget, having a good grasp of your expenses. It really is like the foundation of anything in your financial plan. I think working with a professional um, and hmm, 
starting to save as soon as you can. Yes. Yeah. You know, I, I know you talked about, you know, social media and the videos that I put out. And there was this one video that I put out. And I think it's probably the most powerful video I've shared. And it's the cost of waiting to invest. And in that video, I'm actually able to show how much more you have to put away just to get to the same end result. Um, and it is crazy when you actually look at the numbers and understand how much time can affect your end game. So really, really, as soon as you can start saving, prioritize doing that and putting yourself in a position where your future self won't have to work as hard uh, to get to, to the things that you want to do. I love that. And I, I'm glad you talked about, I think you said this earlier, like time is really your best friend when it comes to finances, because I, like I said, I've said this several times, I'm an impulsive spender. I'm like, why does it matter? Like, what if I die? That's, well, who cares about all that money? But then what if I don't die? And then at 65, I'm like, wait a second, I didn't save a dollar and now I'm here and now I'm gonna have to work harder or keep working. So you do have to kind of think about, yes, living in the now, but like you said, paying your future self. I like that phrase, paying your future self. You know, we have, uh, you know, I I think the big thing is, you know, you look statistically, Americans are really not ready to retire. And it's a really scary thing. And I know it seems so far away, but if you can put yourself in a position where you're preparing for that and you're putting yourself in a position where you won't have to worry about can you retire, will you have enough and that you can enjoy your retirement. It is so powerful to feel confident about that. And we have a big problem in the US where most people just are not saving enough and are are not in a position. You see a lot of Walmart greeters that are, you know, very old and it's a cute little grandma. She should be sitting at home, but she can't, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's where it's thinking of your future self and putting yourself in a position where you know you'll be okay because you're planning for it now. And it seems so far away and I completely get that. And that's why it's so hard to think about those things, but you're just helping your future self. You really are. I love that. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I learned so much today. I, like I said, I've had a financial advisor on before. I do take, I'm actually the type of person that I look at my bank account several times a week. I don't like do that thing of like, oh, if I don't look at it, it's not going to affect me. That's the funniest thing I've heard when people are like, no, I don't look at it. I just hope for the best. Um, So I'm glad you were on to walk us through everything, even the 401k and the savings and investing. You were such a wealth of knowledge and I loved having you on. Well, thank you for having me. Yes. Yeah, I think it's really awesome that you're financially responsible and you're thinking about these things. So. Thanks. I would say I would say I grade myself like a C plus with finances. I'm still working on it. I need to talk to you. We need to book an appointment after this and get my finances back on track. Thanks so much for doing the show, Sheer. Thank you. Well, I hope you learned a thing or two about finances and what best serves you in your life because I learned a ton and I definitely feel more confident in knowing what to do with my money. You can follow Sheer at Sheer Caden on Instagram, me at Chelsea Rife, or email me at hello at inmynonexpertopinion.com for questions, advice, feedback, or just to say hi. I love connecting with you guys. And of course, I'll link this all in the show notes. We have a lot of exciting guests on the podcast this month. And if you're enjoying what you're hearing, please leave a review, rate, subscribe, or even share it on your Instagram story. Everything helps, and it helps me book more exciting guests like the ones you'll be hearing over the next several months. Good thing we had an expert on today because you guys know I have a lot of non-expert opinions. See you next week.